Hello and welcome to this episode of Women in Finance podcast. If you're new to the show, I hope you remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any new episode. My guest today is Margaret Reed, the Senior Portfolio Manager at the Private Bank at Union Bank and a member of the Asset Allocation Committee at Highmark Capital Management, an investment advisory subsidiary of MUFG Union Bank. Margaret manages a broad array of investment portfolios on behalf of her high net worth clients, trusts, foundations, and nonprofit organizations. She works with a team of specialists in the private bank, an exclusive part of Union Bank, to provide wealth planning, investments, risk management, trust and estate services, and banking advice to clients and advisors. Across her career, Margaret has been committed to supporting and empowering women, both as growing and unstoppable economic force and as upcoming leaders in the investment industry. In this conversation, Margaret shares her inspiring yet challenging journey into the world of finance and how she overcame numerous obstacles with persistent side work and a continuous improvement mentality. Margaret also speaks about how she uses her role at the private bank to help women address their distinct financial needs. Please enjoy my conversation with Margaret Reed. Margaret, such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for hosting today. Just a great opportunity for this discussion. Let's start uh, with your story and how you made your way to the world of finance. My journey, I'd say, is one that was diverse and very nonlinear. But early on, I discovered my passion for the capital markets. I wasn't able to go to a four-year university like many after high school. So I spent many years working full-time, going to junior college. And my journey really began when I decided to leave my hometown in California at the young age of 19 and started anew in the city of Seattle, where I landed my first job at a brokerage firm at Piper Jeffrey and actually started as a receptionist. And this was back in 1999 during the start of the tech bubble and moved to a brokerage assistant role And that's where I knew I had to pursue a Series 7 and 63 licensing exams, really just to push myself forward and know that I'm in a better place to deliver a better value for the firm. But that was the time when I became really enthralled with the stock market and what was the roller coaster of the dot-com bubble, learning about risk-reward, not only with the stocks, but also stock options, learning about the rules and regulations of the industry. But it was really at that time that I also saw very little women in leadership roles and overall representation in the industry. So I think in part, seeing how little women there were also, too, showed me that there was so much room for me to grow in that industry. So at the end of the day, I think combined with just the underpinnings of what was happening in the stock market at that time, plus just fueling my ambition and motivation to really be a presence in the industry that needed more women in it. How do you think your early roles impacted you? Are there some lessons you keep from early on that still impact you today? Yeah, I'd say that first brokerage assistant role, that really built my foundation on how to work with, let's say, all spectrums of personalities, both how to work with people internally colleagues, et cetera, but also to externally with clients and seeing too, I think how important it is just to have a good solid work ethic 
you know, at Piper Jeffrey, I just so distinctly remember this one broker who would come in the office 4 a.m. every single day being on the West Coast, and he was never the first person to leave either. But I think, you know, my next role after finishing my bachelor's degree in California, I started at RCM Capital in San Francisco, and that really was my true skill building years as an investor. So I began at RCM as a trading associate, and this was back in 2005 for their large cap growth team. So I started out entering buy or sell orders in large cap stocks and a multi-billion dollar fund that teaches you pretty quickly about the market. And that was the time for me where I developed understandings of how to evaluate a company, why a certain stock made sense from a portfolio construction standpoint, how to interpret performance against a benchmark. So all of these really demonstrated to me how much growth there was in an industry because I was only in one small part of it, being a large cap active manager. And I think that really too demonstrated to me, again, the female angle here where I was the only woman in the room most of the time whether it was internal investment meetings or sitting across from CEO or CFO companies that we owned in the fund. So that to me was what really impacted my growth was understanding that I had to do more. I had to go and obtain my CFA chartered financial analyst charter. And that to me really developed the skill set of knowing, you know, how to not just invest behind a stock, but invest and understand the broader capital markets. So that two plus, I'd say just working and being at a large cap growth firm, that's very focused on long-term secular themes where, you know, you can invest behind a company and invest behind a thematic that that can take you through a market correction that can take you through a recession. If you're investing behind long-term durable trends, but also high-quality companies. I want to speak a bit more about uh, your early career. And I'm curious, since you pointed out not only that you were almost always the only female in the room, but also your atypical background, if I can call it that. Tell me about how you found a way to cope with all of these particular aspects, things that would make you different from the rest of the team. I want to learn a bit more about how you kept motivated and how you thrived when faced with all of this different diverse aspects, which were not necessarily something you sought, right? Well, going back to those early years, Andrea, it's really points me toward when I started my CFA journey. So this was back in 2007. I recently got married. And also, once I finished my level one studying and passed that exam, I actually found out I was pregnant the day before sitting for level two in 2008. That did end up being a retake <laughs> for that exam. <laughs> But then, you know, the global financial crisis happened. And I was on maternity leave with my first daughter while studying for that CFA level two retake when the market hit the low in, on March 9 of 2009. So that to me was probably one of the scariest times, but it also, because I was still studying and going toward a goal, that kept me grounded. I'd say the other thing that kept me grounded was just my family, my husband. I have to give him you know, just the accolades here 
for his constant support in being in a very challenging industry for women, having to show up at the desk at 6 a.m. and do the commute hours when you have ultimately two young children. I had my second daughter while studying for level three. (laughs) So I'd say it's a function of always having a goal to focus on. It was a function of knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel, even when you have challenges like a global financial crisis to get through, and really just pushing forward and knowing that it's okay to be curious. It's okay to ask questions. I think that was something that I was well known for at RCM, where you know I wasn't the stock analyst covering ABC stock, but I was happy to ask all the questions to learn more. And then just the last comment I'd say, Andrea, is just around my network. That to me has been a constant where I think there is such an underappreciation of what a network can do for any individual really in this industry, because it's those people, those individuals that are really a catalyst when you need it, when it comes to going through challenges and changes, which happen in our industry pretty frequently. So we'll get to the network in a second, because I want to learn more about that. But before, were there situations or how did your thinking go? Were you seeing yourself different from the team, like you don't belong or you were only guided by your curiosity and your mission and never really felt much different than your peers or anyone sitting next to you? I would answer that with a wholehearted yes. (laughs) First (laughs) was certainly the feeling of maybe I don't belong because I am the only woman in the room. Or I don't belong because I got my bachelor's degree at CSU, California State University, Sacramento. So not your Harvard, not your Yale. I didn't have an MBA. So there was a lot of reasons why I felt, let's say, out of place. But then for me, that was even more motivating to push the seams, right? Push the ceiling to demonstrate that you don't necessarily need a pedigree to be successful in this industry. And again, it was just knowing that I can continue to be better and build experience just by always craving that new knowledge. I think that's one thing in this industry that I absolutely love and passionate about is you wake up every day and you learn something new. And I don't think there's many industries, maybe the medical field that can offer the level of new information that has to be learned every day. And and this is an industry that continues to evolve and change. It really comes down to knowing that will always be certain challenges for certain individuals in this industry, but knowing too, that if you continue to do good work, surround yourself with good people and a good team, that you can reach through those ceilings and reach through those experiences that might seem like more of a battle than it's worth. Let's talk more about the network you mentioned before. So were there any influential figures, any sort of mentors, or did you have a support system, so to say, with your network while you were climbing the ladder and still learning those early lessons? Back in 2013 was really a pivotal moment for my network, so to speak. So I, you know, I'm been a member of the CFA Society of San Francisco, let's see, since 2008, then got my charter in 2012. 
But really in 2013, there was about a dozen women, including myself, in my CFA Bay Area region. We all banded together and established a women's initiative network, which was then a committee for the CFA Society. And I think that was really the first time that I had in a room surrounded by 12 other women who all had different backgrounds and all different networks. And we came together to say, we need to support women in this industry. And that to me, and this was before the Me Too movement, this was before the real diversity and inclusion campaigns that have happened over the past few years from a corporate level or shareholder level. And this really was, I think, that building moment for me, demonstrating that having those people around you, and they're not necessarily friends, but they become your friends just by the nature of the frequency of seeing each other, the frequency of knowing that if I have any issues, any concerns around where my career is going or this particular situation that I'm dealing with, I know I have these people in my network to reach out to. And that only leads to more connecting to others outside their networks, right? So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy of what can happen just by the nature of understanding that there is power to it. So let's speak a bit more about your growth in your career and how you joined Highmark and Union Bank. Maybe also give a little bit of background on Highmark. So RCM Capital, which was then bought and rebranded to Allianz Global Investors, there was a moment in time there that really changed my glide path. And there was just a clear indication of what I did and did not want my career to be. So back in 2012, when I got my CFA designation, RCM Capital had a analyst and training program. So after I passed my CFA level three, obtained my charter, that enabled me to be eligible to apply for this program. So despite my seven years of experience and contributions to that team and earning my charter, I was essentially told I didn't have what it takes to be an analyst in that program, even though I'd already been doing the work for several years for the large cap team there. And then the opportunity was handed to a male Harvard graduate with much less experience. So to me, that was the writing on the wall that my success can't be held back by inherent biases of selecting a more pedigreed person and handing, you know, the opportunity to another man in the industry. So I knew that I had the experience, I had the track record, and now I had the CFA designation behind my back. And that's when the opportunity to join Highmark came about the following year. And Highmark is a registered investment advisory arm underneath Union Bank. What was so attractive is that this firm was managing fully diversified portfolios for high net worth clients, also institutional clients. This was just very attractive to me at a time when large cap managers in particular, just the movement of actively managed assets to passively managed assets like ETFs, that was just an incredible trend that was really hard to manage, just the outflow of assets from where I was sitting to other areas in the industry. So because, you know, Highmark is 
essentially managing these diversified portfolios, it really kind of broke my ceiling in expanding the expertise to other asset classes. It was attractive too, because it was a boutique environment, but large enough to benefit really from the scale and just incredible intellectual capital by the nature of the team's experience across these asset classes. So that really created a gateway for me to move into a portfolio manager role several years ago. And then again, because of my female CFA network, I was actually able to have an opportunity to be broadcast on CNBC. And that was back in 2018. And since then, I've taken on just more external opportunities to represent Union Bank, the private bank and other media forums. And that's led to just more leadership opportunities, whether it was I was added as a voting member to our asset allocation committee. This year, I was promoted as a director and also uh, have been on our Women's Advisory Council for the past several years as well. So I think this opportunity that moving from a smaller place in the industry, so to speak, to a broader place in the industry where I was just given much more opportunity not only for building my knowledge base, but also just expanding upon the network and expanding upon, you know, the clients that I've built and developed with over the past several years. It sounds like such a great platform and such a good opportunity for you to expand in so many different levels. But I'm wondering, faced with that difficult situation before, right when you joined Highmark or before, right before, what kept you motivated? How did you prevent giving up <laughs> and looking for something else? I mean, I can only imagine how difficult that situation must have been. I think it really all went back to me knowing that I was undervalued and underappreciated. I needed to go somewhere that gave me more opportunity, but also appreciated more what I brought to the table. I think at the end of the day, we all want to feel that way, right? We all want to be given gratitude, so to speak, or appreciation for what we do and the value that we contribute on any level. And sometimes it's not necessarily direct words. It's more just that you want to be able to get that level of appreciation And whether it's how you're being compensated or how you're being elevated in the firm, which took time. It took time at Highmark and Union Bank, the private bank. But I think that to me was probably the biggest part of that period of time in my life was just knowing that I was not being appreciated to the extent that I thought I deserved. How do you think from the perspective of someone maybe joining a new firm or taking on a new opportunity, how do you think, and I'm speaking, of course, of a woman in this case, I don't know whether that would change your answer, but just flagging it as well. How should women or new joiners do their due diligence on prospective firms to kind of avoid the situations or like spot red flags? Do you have any particular tips or things they should look out for? So on the career front, whether you're a woman or a man in this industry, you know, I always point to, I call it the three E's of building a network. So engagement, enrichment, and being able to evolve. But on that engagement side of the picture, I think that is probably the most critical when someone is trying to 
better understand what might be a good fit for them versus their current situation. So I think first and foremost, build out your LinkedIn profile, develop what is somewhat of a social media brand out there to start looking through even just the, those that are in your network and who they're connected to. Do not be shy about asking for, let's say, an informational interview. I think that was one thing that I did before I moved to Highmark and Union Bank, the private bank, was reaching out to those in my network to connect me with other leaders in the region at these other various firms to understand how they structure their investment platform, how they structure around clients, how do they compensate, you know, what are the advancement opportunities within those specific firms. And it's okay to take the time and do the legwork to ask those questions and find the right people. Do not be shy about asking those questions because the more information you have, the more confident you're going to be about making that next move in your career. That's excellent. I've asked you enough about setbacks, I think. Let's talk about something more high-spirited. So let's talk more about your investment philosophy and how you work with clients from your current role. Sure. Well, first on the client front, majority of my clients are based in Northern California, as far as North as Tahoe, as far South as San Diego. It is a really broad base of the types of clients that I work with. You know, they're multi-generational families who have either inherited their wealth or they've created their wealth via their business or company ownerships. A lot of my clients are, have built their wealth through real estate, and now they're looking for more liquid investments to build out their portfolios. Some are nonprofit organizations who, you know, by the nature of being able to invest, you know, their funds are able to grant more money to our Bay Area communities. So I'm always poised with that. I always want to be successful for all clients, but it's especially heartening when it's helping Our local Bay Area communities. I'd also say too, it's a broad brush of California history, uh, being able to serve the clients that I do, because you know whether it's how they accumulated their wealth over time, over California's history, or how it's being created today. There's just so much happening in the Bay Area, whether it's the new companies coming to market or new businesses that are formed. It's just always an exciting time <laughs> to see what's you know, what is happening with my client base. But uh, in terms of investment approach and philosophy, I'm very fortunate, actually, the way that we're able to approach clients. It is very team-based and expert-oriented. Like I mentioned, I work with about 30 investment professionals who all have their own background and expertise. You know, I obviously have my expertise more on the equity side of the market and stock selection, but I work with individuals who have 20, 30 years in the fixed income market that I get to leverage that expertise to help inform investment decisions for my clients. And then the approach and philosophy is really around building that team around each client, whether it's their needs on the investment side, on the real estate side, but also to so much of what I do in, on the investment side is tied to what their estate planning situation is, what their long-term financial goals are. It's really customized. What might be the backbone of my investment philosophy might not completely coincide or 
go well with what the client's, you know, focus and needs are. So my role is very hands-on with all my clients in trying to meet those expectations, whether it's achieving those goals, income generation, but really providing that guidance on the markets, on their investment allocation, and to just how they can carry on their legacy. But one more comment on investment philosophy, I think is, again, grounded in my upbringing as an active manager. I absolutely believe in active management. I believe in investing in high quality companies that have long durable growth. And also too, if you invest behind the quality aspects of the capital markets, you know, when there is market volatility, that's when quality does handily outperform and tends to provide that solace in the storm. And I've gone through, let's see, five market corrections in my time that have demonstrated to me the importance of investing in quality in the market. Yeah, speak a little bit more about that. How do you keep your cool and stick to your philosophy when such corrections happen, right? Like we have seen uh, at the beginning of COVID. So what do you think in those moments? What do you do? Well, first, I'm, again, fortunate by the nature of our team approach. So it's, it's really doing all of the framework of the markets and what they're pricing in, how much the Federal Reserve coming in and, and providing all of the stimulus that occurred in March of 2020. That was really the start of the recovery, both for the economy and the markets. So I'd say it's really around just sticking to a framework and sticking to the disciplined aspects of what is investment management and sticking to, to diversification. I've spent many calls during that time with clients that we had to absolutely revisit if they were in the right investment objective, for example, but ensuring that clients did not overreact. I think emotion definitely can get the upper hand in this industry and as an investor, and it is challenging to keep those emotions at bay and not try to react to the market. So by looking at the market in a long-term orientation like we do, where you it gives you a lot of opportunity to take advantage of such corrections in the market. I think it's really important too to know that you can't short time the market. It's probably the most impossible thing. And and recognizing that if you're long-term oriented and able to take advantage of those market opportunities, I think that really backs the framework of what we do and how I invest for clients. But again, customized to each client's specific goals and objectives. Fantastic. Do you review your framework from time to time or how do you keep up and ensure your processes and your approach is still matching the environment and, and the current state? I'd say it, there's two answers to that. First is around the framework from an investment standpoint. And then the second is around the framework based on the client. So the framework based on the market is, again, focusing on long-term returns across various asset classes, recognizing that if we've just ended you know, a bull market the past decade, that might lead to lower forward returns and managing those expectations and trying to ensure that if we're taking advantage of certain more attractive areas in the market, that's really part of the framework is finding value when we're in expensive markets like we are today. To the client side of it, 
it's really staying connected with the clients. I think that to me has been the biggest lesson throughout the COVID pandemic. If I'm staying close to my clients, if I'm understanding what's happening from their own individual standpoint, I can better align and better serve them by knowing what is the correct allocation for them or what might be a change in their allocation because of what's happening each individual client and each individual tax year. I think tax is a large part of what I do as well as just helping clients be as tax efficient as possible via you know what I'm doing on their investment portfolios. I'd like to ask you also what you make of the current or the, maybe the recent developments. And we've seen that smaller retail investors have more power, the democratization of capital markets and how everyone wants to play or feels they have to play a role. Can you speak more about what you make of all of these changes? On the democratization of investing, I'd say all in all, it's I lean more on the side of it's a good development, but I also lean on the side of it's important to understand the risk that any investor takes with, you know, getting involved in some of the meme stock phenomenon. But it's all being driven in large part by what took place during the COVID pandemic, staying at home, you know, being cooped up at the house, not being able to do much other than be on a screen and all of the excess stimulus that was put into consumer wallets enabled them to have the excess cash flow to get involved in the stock market, layered on top of no commission environment that we're in. You know, a lot of the large brokerage firms going to zero commissions also enabled this ability of consumers to enter the market at a pretty low cost. So because this has effectuated due to all these factors, it's actually partly why we're seeing such incredible returns in the overall equity market, just by the nature of higher volumes. Uh, I remember back in the global financial crisis, that was a big issue. The lack of volume traded on the NASDAQ, on the exchanges, where it created more volatility and more corrections because of that lack of volume. So I'd say there's positives and negatives for that phenomenon of the meme stocks, but too, I think it's important for the next generation to get more comfortable with investing. And once this younger generation reaches, we'll call it a more stable post-pandemic era of whether it's going back to work, starting families, et cetera, where they're not going to be able to spend the time to do that intraday trading, et cetera, To me, that means that in this next generation of investors, they're going to be more wanting that solid investment advice to have those advisors around them to help build out their financial plan, et cetera. And now they might be more willing and able to have that conversation and have that comfort level with investing, which I think there's been so many of my experiences with some clients and potential clients that don't have that level of comfort in the market just because we've gone through the recessions and corrections that we've seen over time. But that too has, I guess, created you know the amount of populace out there that have not been involved in the markets and not been able to grow their investable assets. So does the younger generation have an unrealistic risk tolerance or risk return expectation? One could certainly argue that, but hard to say exactly if that's something each of these retail investors are going to feel. 
But when they do feel, you know, that stock decline of 50 or 75% in one day, that's when, you know, the lessons are learned. And that's when hopefully they understand that they might be taking on undue risk and therefore there's ramifications to that. Again, I think that speaks to the importance of having discipline, having due diligence in anything you're investing in, whether it's at a company level or, you know, mutual fund or ETF level. You know, if you don't know the answers to those questions, not knowing how much risk you're taking in any one investment, that's when it's important to reach out, find a trusted investment manager, advisor, and fully understand what is the risk taken with any investment. I'd like to ask you about HERD, which is an initiative by Union Bank, right? There's one recording, I will put it in the show notes, because I think, although it's designed for your clients, I think there are a lot of valuable general lessons learned in there for anyone interested. But I'm curious to hear from you what it is, how it started, and why do you feel you have to speak also in particular to women through this initiative? So Herd is a brand campaign that developed at the private bank, really through our Women's Advisory Council. And this was a council that was founded back in 2017. It had 12 female employees, colleagues that spanned all business lines of the private bank. And it was back then that we as an organization really recognized that women represented a growing and unique segment that have historically been underserved by the wealth man management industry. The most common situation that we flag to our teammates is not handing your business card to the man across the table first, hand it to the woman across the table. Just ensuring that there is that inclusivity of anything tied to the finances of any family or individual Make it about both woman and man sitting across the table. So at that time, we tasked ourselves with developing, whether it was thought leadership, tools or insights, developing events, which like the event you had mentioned, and also to professional development. So this spanned not only, you know, what we were delivering for clients, but also we have what we call an enterprise resource group that is tailored toward our female colleagues, employees, regardless of where they stood in the organization, to help better serve them, however it meant toward their financial health. So Heard, like you mentioned, is a live website. It's a platform, and we're dedicating that platform to women to serve their unique financial needs, because they do have unique needs, really at every life stage. And we want women, because of the Heard campaign and branding, it's really about listening, it's about hearing them. And if we do that, we better enable them to achieve what they want to achieve in life. So this really is tied to all topics that we know our female audience wants to hear. We did a lot of survey work early on and certainly keep tabs on the surveys that happen across you know, various firms out there. And we've had great success with just these events alone that Not only are we doing it for our specific client base, but we're also now doing it for other organizations that have internal women's groups. I've delivered some webinars to a women's physician group, a women's accounting internal group. So it's really built so much great momentum in how we engage and hopefully at the end of the day, better support our female clients. Are there any nuggets you can share right now? Anything 
you feel has been any question that has been asked by a lot of women or any topic you feel it's most relevant to women as they think about investing and managing their wealth? The number one thing that comes up the most is, do I have enough confidence to make this decision? Whatever the decision might be. It could be tied to an investment. It could be tied to their long-term financial planning. And that is, I'd say, the number one area that we try to help our female clients is by having that level of communication around what's happening in their portfolio, what's happening with the markets, having guidance around you know, a market outlook, for example, and whether that investment or investment allocation is helping to achieve their financial goals. Women are very goal-oriented, so I think if they have more ability and more support to recognize that by making this decision, therefore, you know, they're going to build confidence and get closer and closer to that long-term goal. Uh, I'd say the other element that we really speak to clients about is on the health side of the picture. So many of our female clients might not recognize that they are leaned on much more in life to help care for loved ones. And so they are required then to be taken out of the workforce or taken away from their supporting their own family to help other members of their family. And this can happen multiple times over a, a woman's lifetime. How do we ensure that there's proper planning in terms of long-term care, long-term care insurance? How do we know that we want to ensure that, you know, all of our female clients have the proper documentation in their estate plan should something happen to them that would not allow them to take care of their own finances? So there's a lot of, we'll say, life elements to what we speak to clients about because all of these life events that potentially happen and happen more to women will have financial consequences. And so it's, again, I think through education, you build that confidence level. Arguably, the women or the people who would benefit most from this education are not the ones reaching out to you, right? They already have a sort of interest and already thought about managing their wealth, what they should do around estate planning and so on. So my question is, how do you reach out or how do you make sure that the clients would benefit more from having these general educational framework? are also the ones you spend time with? I would say first, Andrea, that not all of our clients or my clients necessarily have everything put together for their financial plan or have long-term care insurance or have you know necessarily made all the right steps in terms of saving for retirement, for example. So that's point one. Point two, I'd say, is many of my clients We are dealing with multi-generational families. So if I can have an impact by having this conversation with my client who then goes and talks to her 20-year-old daughter because the 20-year-old daughter hasn't invested or doesn't know how to start investing or doesn't know what steps she needs to take to save for retirement, that to me is success. Because again, this is about spreading that knowledge base, spreading the importance of all these topics to women, because many times women are not involved in the conversation. And this goes down in, into the younger ages and the younger generations too. I would like to ask about general lessons learned across your career. And we picked on a few things along the way, but if you would look back and think about what you wish you knew like 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Does anything come to mind? 
Well, I think network is the number one thing that we've made that point today. So don't discount the power of a network. And I think there can be hesitancy around networking, that word, because there's been too much time that's passed by and you might feel uncomfortable reaching out to any said person. But I'd say there's time is of no consequence for those who want to support you and what you represent. The other lesson learned, I'd say, is don't be in fear of change, even though change is hard and knowing that that change is coming is also very much a challenge. But life is constant in its challenges and its dynamism. And, you know, that's at the end of the day how we grow. Ten years ago, let's say that's 2011. I wish I knew I could stand up in front of any audience. (laughs) Because in 2011, I did not do public speaking. I would not be able to sit in front of a television set and do what I've done in the past few years. So I wish I had that knowledge that I had that ability then, because I think it would have potentially changed the direction of my career. And But I am happy with my career because I've been able to do so much already. And again, it's really a function of embracing change, embracing my network, and having just great people to surround myself with that can support me when there are challenges. I am taking you a little back because I wanted to ask you specifically if there is anything you wish you knew while you were still in the earlier part of your career, while still climbing the ladder and facing all those difficult situations. Is there something you wish you knew back then? Maybe there is someone out there in the same situation and needs to hear what you would have told yourself back then. In my We'll say at my growth years, I would say, I wish I knew I could ask for more. And I wish I had the confidence to know that it's okay to know your value and to ask, you know, whether it's to do more, to be paid more, you know, especially in this current environment where there's plenty of studies out there that women are still underpaid in this industry. And if you're doing the equivalent job or better job, it's okay to ask because you deserve it. Since we spoke about the group you put together around the CFA Society in San Francisco, I'm curious if any particular, any specific lessons or things you learned through this group, through these interactions come to mind. And I'm thinking, of course, more career related. And when you stood at, had challenges and, and sought the group's advice, what did they say? I'll give you one example of kind of the activity that I was involved in to help frame the answer to your question. So this Women's Initiative Network WIN committee, I took on an initiative where I wanted to showcase other successful female investment managers because I felt that if I could showcase how successful women can be in this industry, it could thereby motivate and engage what is the CFA membership base, the female membership base. So I developed an annual event that we call now our Global Women's Portfolio Manager Panel to showcase these successful female investment managers across, really it was across the country. I sourced some portfolio managers, whether they were from Washington, D.C. or Portland, Oregon. And, you know, the first panel I put on had four investment managers across some of the large firms we all know. There were 40 people in the audience and I moderated the panel. And that was eight years ago to the present day where have this ongoing annual event. I'm actually going to be a panelist this year (laughs) for the first time. 
And again, I think it was by building out the reason to reach out right? The reason to expand who I know, expand the investment firms I know, hear about other women and their career pathways, because even just being in the presence and hearing those stories is what I knew motivated me. And I wanted other female CFA members or stakeholders in our community to hear that too, and hopefully be motivated to know that they can continue to grow and advance in this industry. Since you mentioned the public speaking lesson and the fact that you wish you started with that much earlier, you're a frequent guest on CNBC and other media outlets. Give us the story behind how that came to be. Again, pointing back to the network, it all happened because I happened to be at a conference sitting across the table from one of my fellow female CFA community members. And actually, I was about to leave the conference and she pulled me over and had me sit down and meet her good longtime friend, also a CFA charter holder in the industry. And that woman got a call from CNBC that day asking if she knew any female investment managers that can talk individual stocks. And that woman did not have that experience, but my friend sitting next to me said, well, you're sitting next to one, Margaret, give her your card. <laughs> And lo and behold, the next day I got a call from the CNBC producer, did some preliminary calls, uh, and they asked me to go out to their New Jersey studio and do a test run. And shortly after that, I was asked to be on the show in January of 2019. So it all came by coincidence, but also came via my network and, you know, just the advocacy of, of a dear friend and person in my network. But I'd say, too, once that door was open, I do want to give some accolades to Union Bank because then they just started giving me that additional support and providing me more opportunities to continue to represent the firm and how we invest And without that, without being an organization that had that in place, I certainly wouldn't have had the continued opportunities that I've had, not just on CNBC, but in other reputable broadcast firms and, and in the media outlets in general. So it's been a great ride, and I certainly look forward to doing more, you know, whether it's more investment opportunities for my clients, you know, more media opportunities to represent the firm and, and continue pushing forward. If anyone interested feels like they want to reach out to you, what would be the best way to do that? LinkedIn would be the first and foremost way to, to do that. So you can find me, you know, Margaret Reed, Union Bank on LinkedIn Please, I always encourage, you know, anyone to reach out if they want just to have a conversation or they want to connect on people and networks. Fantastic. Yeah, I'll certainly put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes as well for anyone interested so they have an easier time finding you. Thank you so much, Margaret. This has been really awesome conversation and thank you so much for sharing everything. Thank you, Andrea. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're new to the show, I hope you will check out my previous interviews. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any new episode. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. For the show notes, please head over to our website, womeninfinancepodcast.com. Thanks again. And until next time, keep well.
All opinions expressed by Andrea and her guests are solely personal opinions and do not reflect the opinion of any respective organization. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. 